The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Leah Penniman. She is a black Creole farmer who has been tending the soil for 22 years and organizing for an anti-racist food system for 16 years. She began with the Food Project in Boston, Massachusetts, and went on to work at Farm School in Athol, Massachusetts, and Many Hands Organic Farm in Barr, Massachusetts. She co-founded Youth Grow Urban Farm in Worcester, Massachusetts, and she currently serves as founding co-executive director of Soul Fire Farm in Grafton, New York. This is a people-of-color-led project that works to dismantle racism in the food system. She is also the author of a tremendous and much-needed new book titled Farming While Black, Soul Fire Farm's Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land. Welcome, Leah. Thank you so much for having me. Your work is so important. And it just so happens that in addition to your beautiful book, which really, in a nutshell, celebrates the reverence to me of food and our connection to the land and the wisdom of our ancestors. But you were also recently interviewed in the July issue of The Sun magazine, in which you delve into the issue of racism in the food system. And I have so wanted to touch on this, and I didn't know where to start. So finding you has been a real blessing. So welcome. Well, it's very exciting to have an opportunity to talk about it. I think that a lot of folks when they hear the idea of racism in the food system, they think, you know, what does race and food have to do with each other? And in my 23 years in this field, I've come to understand that the entire DNA of our food system is based on racial injustice and that if we're going to address the issues of hunger, lack of access to land, farm worker rights, we absolutely have to look at the racial bias that's inherent in the system. So I'm very excited to get to talk to you about it. Do you think that this racism in the food system, do you think that's unique to the United States? Or I know you've traveled internationally. Do you think it exists elsewhere as well? I absolutely do think so. I am a biologist by training, and so I often think about things in science metaphors. So if you were to imagine the food system as having DNA, so the double helix, the two strands, one of those strands is stolen land, and the other is exploited labor. And anywhere where colonization has occurred, those themes are intact, that the land that the food is grown on has been taken from indigenous people, uh, very rarely returned, and that the labor is, as was once enslaved labor, and now is labor that's usually heavily exploited through programs like H2A, the ways that undocumented workers are treated in the farms and essentially creating an underclass that does the work that brings food to our plates. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is not unique to the United States at all. And people who support this exploitive system, they will argue for it in terms of, well, you know, we need to have affordable food. And this exploitive nature of the system makes cheap food available to everyone. 
Have you heard this as well? I have heard it, and I actually recently read some studies that were explaining that as a percentage of our income in the United States, we spend less on our food than any other developed nation. So we actually spend an astoundingly small portion of our income on food. And I don't want to say this to minimize the importance of everyone being able to have food access, but I think it's disingenuous to pit low-income people who need to eat food against low-income people who grow our food. I think that we have the intelligence and the imagination to create a food system that both honors the workers and also makes sure that everyone gets food onto their plates. Other countries have figured this out. Costa Rica, for example, provides payments to their small farmers for paying livable wages and for providing ecosystem services like pollinator habitat and carbon sequestration. So they figured out how to take the idea of the public trust, how we treat humans on the earth, and to monetize it and actually give out payments for that as a way of making sure the farmer gets a living wage and in turn the prices don't have to be raised on food out of the the reach of affordability of the population. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. I wish, as a nutritionist, that farmers would be rewarded for producing quality food rather than this race to quantity all the time, Mm -hmm. especially in light of food waste. So I really appreciate that. And I also think whenever I hear people say, well, you know, we have to have cheap food, it's like, no, we need high quality food because the cheap food is really expensive. And we need to make sure that everyone can afford to buy high quality food to keep them well. We talk about the pursuit of happiness in the United States. How can we really be happy if we're not well nourished and not able to put this healing food on our plates? That's so true. And a friend of mine pointed out this really interesting irony that we have in our food system, which is that if you want to farm organically, which I would argue is a healthier way to farm, both for the humans consuming the food, free of pesticide residues and so forth, as well as the earth, clearly, you have to go through a certification process and oftentimes pay thousands of dollars, tens to hundreds of hours invested in this process in order to get that certification. But if you would like to plant a monocrop douse it with carcinogenic pesticides, douse it with fertilizers that lead to problems like dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico and emit greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and so forth, essentially putting a huge burden on the public and on society in terms of your externalities. You don't need any certification at all. In fact, you will be heavily subsidized through programs in the Farm Bill and through the USDA. And what a world it would be, right, if you had to get certified to poison the planet and the human population, and you were getting subsidies and support for doing agriculture in the way that our ancestors have done it successfully in a way that is in harmony with with the earth and the human community. Exactly. And I'd also love to see more labels on food to help acquaint people with the process of who produced it and what residues are there exactly. You know, you really have to dig deeply to find true quality food. So I want to back up just a little bit and ask you how you became interested in farming. Absolutely. Well, farming found me a bit by accident. I've always felt so connected to the earth. As a brown-skinned child in an almost all-white town, social relationships were challenging to say the least. There was a lot of real overt rural racism, taunting, assaults, exclusion, and so forth. So I spent almost all my time in the forest. Trees were my friends. They were always kind to me. So I knew that when I came of age and was ready to get a summer job that I wanted to do something with the earth. And I was lucky enough to be offered a position at the Food Project, 
outside of Boston, Massachusetts, which is a youth farming and leadership development program. And I just fell in love from that very first time of taking a scuffle hoe down a row and seeing with satisfaction the way the bed was cleared of weeds and getting to harvest those carrots. And we did a lot of service work at shelters for people without homes and domestic violence shelters. So, you know, getting to make a stew for the residents there. It was in that tumultuous time of being a teenager when it's so unclear whether we're worthy, whether anything we do matters, to get plugged into something that was so clearly good. You can't argue that producing food for community isn't good. It was grounding for me, and I just kept farming. You know, People thought I was pretty strange. It was at the in the 90s. This was not a thing for black kids to do. I got called a race trader, all of that, and, and persevered, and a big part of jumping ahead quite a bit, but a big part of starting Soul Fire Farm and writing Farming While Black was to to create that book that I needed to read and to be that role model that I needed as a young person to see someone like me in farming. What do you mean by race trader? Oh, so race trader. <laughs> in this context, I was challenged that I would be better suited to use my intelligence, my motivation, my ability to get things done in a social justice area that was more relevant to the black community, such as police violence, the discrimination that happens in our school system, the school-to-prison pipeline, housing discrimination, and so forth, and that issues of farming and food, those were white people issues. So that is what I mean by that accusation of race trader. Mm. Now, of course... As I you know, went on in my career and did a lot more research, I came to learn that this narrative that the so-called good food movement and sustainable ag is a white thing is entirely untrue. Almost every single technology that we use to farm in a way that is harmonious with the earth comes out of indigenous and Afro-indigenous traditions. Wow. Everything from worm composting to raised beds to co-ops and the CSA, you know, these are black technologies. And so the idea that the only relationship that black people have ever had with the land is through slavery is really narrow-sighted and and racist in and of itself. You know, there's a 10,000-plus year history of noble and dignified connection to land. And a lot of my research was about uncovering these powerful stories of Dr. George Washington Carver inventing regenerative farming and promoting soil restoration across the South and, and starting extension agencies and so forth. I'm putting that alongside the practical information in the book. Hmm. You know, I knew a young man who had gone through the food project, Wilbur Bullock. Maybe you knew him. And I learned such an important lesson from him. He was just, he was either 24 or 26. But what he taught me was that many young black men are told, what do you want to be farming for? You want to be a slave again. And so Mm -hmm. there's that issue too. And you mentioned that in the article, in the interview in the Sun magazine. And I wonder, how do we get around that? How do we help people of all colors, but especially people of color, embrace interacting with the land and move away from those hard memories of being forced to work the land? Yeah, I mean, I think we can't have reconciliation and healing without truth. Mm. So the first step is not to go around it or to squash it. I don't think our country has ever reckoned with, in any way, the attempted genocide of the entire population of Native people, the enslavement and then the internal slave trade that was going on that ripped apart almost half of the families, the brutality 
of the rape and torture that went on in that, and then the sharecropping and the lynchings. And the, there's never been, as you mentioned, you didn't hear a word in school. I didn't hear a word in school. And so it would make sense then that that trauma keeps creeping up because we have never had a chance to even look each other in, in the eye and say, this is what happened to us, and to grieve that and to really feel the anger and the terror and the sadness and also, you know, on the other side, the shame and the apology so that's really important. I think the truth process is really, really important. I think we also have to look at all the structural barriers that exist. So even if we were tomorrow, you know, all the folks of color to say, we want to be connected to the land, 98% of the rural land is owned by white people in mm-hmm. this country because of that legacy of land theft and inheritance. So the land is just not there, right? And so there are a number of structural barriers that also need to be addressed. Right. At the same time, a big part of our work at Soulfire Farm is to look that trauma in the eye and start to heal from it. And that's really work that's internal to our communities. It's not something that anyone can evangelize and, and shouldn't evangelize. But when black and brown folks get together on the land, we can use our ceremony, you know, our drums, our dance, our storytelling, our song as a way of meeting the land all over again on sovereign terms and starting to do that reconciliation work. And and that's a huge part of what keeps me going is seeing that transformation hundreds of times every year in in folks who come to this farm. Mm. You are doing medical work, and it's tremendous. We're at the midway point, so I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Ms. Leah Penniman. She is the author of a terrific book titled Farming While Black, Soul Fire Farms, Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land. What I found so unique about your work on Soul Fire Farm is not only developing or reacquainting ourselves to ancestral ways but also helping people go through this grieving process so that they can come to this work afresh and renewed and feel powerful and proud of their heritage moving forward. But there's still the issue of access to land. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how can people of color gain fairness and gain access to the land? And how did you find your 72 acres? Mm. Well, it's actually a timely question, and I think that we really do in this country, in this country, we need wholesale land reform. We need to look at this land that has been taken from indigenous people, that has legally, people of color throughout history have been excluded in many states from owning land. When black farmers did accumulate 16 million acres of land in the southeast by 1910, almost all of that was lost as the result of outright racist violence, like burnings and lynchings, kicking people off their land, as well as governmental discrimination and giving out loans and so forth. So I think that we do need to, as a society, say, how are we going to redistribute this land? In the meantime, we have been working on what we're calling people-to-people reparations. So our organization, Soul Fire Farm, helped to birth a new land trust. It's the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust. It's a black, indigenous-led, nonprofit organization that can receive gifts of land, the return of land, and then redistribute it to the tribal communities as well as share it with black, indigenous people of color farmers throughout the Northeast. And so this is a brand new project. It's getting all its legal frameworks in place, but it's really exciting because we've already had several pieces of land donated and a bunch of people lining up 
to make donations. And that's very heartening because we know that a governmental process will be slow, if at all. And in the meantime, there's ways to just go ahead and say, this land or these resources that I have that I've inherited really aren't mine, so to speak. And it's important to to give them back and to share them. And that's starting to happen. Mm-hmm. I know that our time is so limited, but there's one piece that I need to bring up out of your article where you were interviewed in the Sun Magazine. And it's a term that we often use, surely in the white community, when we're trying to do good work and we talk about food deserts. And you're not the first person of color who I've heard say, I don't really like that term. You say that really what we have today is food apartheid. It's a system of segregation that relegates certain people to food abundance, and I would add food quality, and others to food scarcity. And you write, and this is true, if you're a black child in America, you are twice as likely to go to bed hungry tonight as a white child. And then, of course, we've got the whole zip code issue. And zip code, of course, determines more our health status than likely many other things. But it's all connected. Let's talk about food apartheid, because I want everyone to embrace this term. It's so important. Well, thank you for bringing that up. And I have to credit one of my mentors, Karen Washington of Rise and Root Farm, for teaching me that term. And what she said is a food desert, which is the government term, you know, that implies that this is a natural phenomenon because a desert is a natural ecosystem. It has a place in this world. It's benign, right? But there's nothing benign about apartheid, nothing inevitable or natural. And, of course, you mentioned zip codes. You know, the reason that our geography is so tightly correlated with our life expectancy and other factors is because of a history of housing discrimination and redlining. You know, certain neighborhoods were designated for black and brown folks, you weren't allowed to buy a home in other neighborhoods, and those black and brown neighborhoods, the banks didn't lend to them. So home ownership didn't ensue, wealth didn't accumulate, people didn't have inheritances. And so to this day, you still see the effects of redlining in terms of hyper-segregated neighborhoods. For example, in the city of Detroit, it's even if you're in a two-income family, you are very unlikely to be able to get a mortgage within certain neighborhoods to buy a home because of this legacy of redlining. And there's you know, no grocery stores or farmer's markets in those neighborhoods as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is such an important point because a lot of times folks will blame people who are eating foods that have a lower nutritional value for making poor choices. Oh, yes. And then we'll say, well, it's all about education. It's all about motivation. When in fact, all the research shows and my experience shows that It's really an access issue. Folks have access to affordable, high-quality, culturally appropriate food in their neighborhoods. We're more than happy to enjoy it, you know, to enjoy that food just like anybody else. And so really shifting the blame, so to speak, to corporate capitalism and to structural racism in society will help us have better outcomes in what I hope is a common struggle to make sure that everyone has access to healthy food. Right. Well, it's. I think it's a lot easier to blame people. I see it all the time in the public health world, you know, people not making quote unquote good choices, when actually we must look at the policy pieces. Speaking of policy pieces and apartheid, there's another part, well, pretty much this whole article that your whole interview is highlighted for me. But you talk about the policy history. Of course, I had no idea. I didn't learn about this in my history classes. I didn't learn about it in my dietetic program. But I think it's critical for people to know, for example, that the Greenwood Food Blockade of 1962 
where the white citizens' councils in Mississippi prevented food aid from getting to communities that were registering black people to vote. This is how important it is for us to know history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was astounding when I learned that, because to really be thinking about the ways that food has been used as a weapon, yes. right? And this is on the food side, but also at that same time, the government was using its farm support programs as a weapon to punish civil rights activity. Uh, Pete Daniel writes about this in the book Dispossession. So, for example, if you went to Farmers Home Administration to go get a loan for irrigation after two years of drought, the white farmers would get their loans. That's their entitlement programs. You're supposed to get them, right? And then black farmers would go and literally be asked, oh, did I see you registering to vote the other day? Or did I see you at that NAACP meeting or signing a petition? Well, we can't we can't process your paperwork. Yeah. So people were dissuaded from participating in civic life, right? Mm-hmm. Because they would not be able to get the loans and crop allotments and basic supports they needed to run their farms. And in a 1965 study, the U.S. Commission of Civil Rights said that the USDA was the primary driver of black farmland loss because of these practices. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, civil rights organizer Fannie Lou Hammer, you quote her, she writes, if you have 400 quarts of greens and gumbo soup canned for the winter, no one can push you around or tell you what to do. She understood (laughs) that in order to free ourselves, we must feed ourselves. And I think that I'm happy to see a resurgence in a desire to process food and to grow food for ourselves, for our families. But for so long, I've often heard farmers say, well, you know, I'm just a farmer or, gosh, this is not science-based. And you even talk about leaving your job as a science teacher where you made a good salary, you had pension benefits, you had health benefits, but you left that job because you saw science education moving from one of environmental awareness and curiosity to one where we were moving towards this technology-based understanding and losing all of those critical components of what we must know behind. Yeah, absolutely. And Lori Sarenson writes about this, about how important home provisioning is. Because a lot of times as farmers, we get caught up with, you know, all this is going to market, and then all we're eating for dinner is chips and salsa. And home provisioning needs to be first and foremost. Mama Fannie Lou Hamer was brilliant in saying that about we can't actually be free unless we have canned food up for the winter because think about it. As soon as they put the chains around the grocery store, you're going to put down your petition, you'll put down your ballot, you'll put down anything in order to get access to food. So we need to have our schools, our hospitals, our farms, our homes controlled by our communities because that's the basis of our our true freedom, our true autonomy. Mm. Um, And I actually just finished 17 years of a science teaching career. I have, I have no regrets at all. I'm very, very grateful for it. But I see the work that we're doing at Soul Fire Farm as an extension of that. It's education, but it's outside of the four walls of the classroom. It's education with the earth as our classroom, right, and the soil as our chalkboard and, <laughs> and the sky as the curriculum. And so it's been just so wonderful to exercise my skills as a, a teacher and a researcher here on the farm. Yeah. In the article, in the interview, you talk about having a life and doing work that's connected to your heart. 
I think our society really suffers from feelings of loneliness and disconnection. And the work that you're doing is true healing work because it is bringing people together. And you talk about how that works in a rural community. Your book is rich with historical information and basic how-to, you know, how to make your farming endeavors work and some of the risks, you know, what do we have to do with toxic lead, for example, in the soil? You talk about festivals that happen in Ghana, where you also travel to and where your ancestral roots are. And you also have a wonderful chapter on white people uprooting racism, which I think is important for all of us to read so that we can come together and make a brighter future. So I want to put the ball in your court, Leah. I want you to pull out some things in our final few minutes from this book that you want our listeners especially to know. You know, I think two things. One is that, so my daughter, Nishima, who's 16, she's a wonderful young person, says that the food system is everything it takes to get sunshine onto our plates, right? So it's a big arc to get there. And there's so many points of intersection and so many opportunities for all of us to make a positive difference toward a more sustainable and equitable food system. I think we're all responsible, right? We all eat. We pretty much all live on land unless you're in a boat. So we all have something to do with it. And one of the reasons I wrote that last chapter on uprooting racism that's geared towards white people and and just the community in general is because it offers the voices of black and brown farmers with suggestions as to what we can do. And what's key there? is that any time there's a problem we want to solve, I believe that we need to listen to the voices of those most impacted by the problem, right? So if we want to deal with anti-Semitism, we need to ask the Jewish community, right? If we want to deal with veterans healing from PTSD, we ask veterans what to do. And similarly, when we talk about ending racism in the food system, we need to listen to the voices of black, indigenous, people of color. And to make that easy, I did a ton of interviews and combed the literature and put together these suggestions, everything from legislation we need to advocate for around farm worker rights to the type of products that we can buy that support black farmers and so forth. So I'm really excited about that, and I hope that everyone finds a way to engage. I even took that chapter and just threw it on our website so you don't even have to buy the book and you can still read the chapter. And then the other thing I would say is that the earth for so long has been calling us home, I believe. We in sort of a fervor towards developments, towards technology, modernization, we fled those red clays of Georgia for the paved streets of Pittsburgh and Detroit and the urban north. And I believe that we left little pieces of our souls behind. We left this source of wisdom and that aching hole that we often feel, you know, walking around like something's missing and I can't quite name it, I believe is our connection with the earth. And time and again, I experience that when folks come and stay with us here on the farm for one of our programs or just to visit, bit by bit, the earth reclaims her child. And you see the lightness, the wholeness, the freedom in folks' step as a result of that connection. And and I just encourage folks and really invite folks to lean into that, even if it's just a, a tree in the park or a little garden in the side yard, you know, to try to find a way that you have that daily contact with our mother, you know, with the earth. Exactly. What a beautiful note to end on. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my revolutionary guest who is doing such amazing work 
in the healing community around the food system. Ms. Leah Penniman, black creole farmer who has been tending the soil for over 22 years. She's the author of Farming While Black, Soul Fire Farms, Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land. If you've got to pick one book to read this year, I think this is it. Thank you so much, Leah. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. 